0: Hello and welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. The bit of our podcast tracks that is all about evidence really and putting it into action. This month we have got thrills and spills and craft and arts and all sorts of things for you to listen to and think about. We'll start as usual with a little snippet about how we do evidence-based medicine but then we'll be moving on to two really quite interesting variations on the same sort of theme. Some of the most challenging things we face in the framework of evidence-based practice are where we move to the arts and crafts side of our role. How can we ask questions of the best way to deliver the news of an unsurvivable relapse of sarcoma? Is it really possible to evaluate the use of a new surgical approach in fracture repair or leg reconstruction? A straight up randomised controlled trial would never really do this. Well, maybe we are asking too much at the first stage. We wouldn't ask that of a brand new molecule. We would think to think about what was it actions on cells or model systems? What was its pharmacology and healthy volunteers and then unhealthy folk? Well, we probably need to think very much the same way about our craft interventions as well. In the UK, there is a specialist centre that is working to develop methodologies, ways of understanding how to do studies. Methodology specifically for surgeons, but as paediatricians, we can use these crafts too. We can ask when we have such an arts activity, like tie cutting or cannulation, Can the steps of that activity be described and defined? Can we register and understand the outcomes when we want to capture novel or interesting approaches? Can we capture those outcomes that are really important to patients, but also about how the process was gone through and variations within that? Can we sure, when we offer such a novel approach to patients, that we explain the uncertainties and possible disadvantages, as well as the fact that it's a a shiny new thing that is a brilliant advance? When we can do that, then what we've got is the equivalent of early phase work under our belts that we would think of in pharmacology or in medicines development. And then, from beyond that, we can possibly start to ask for trials, comparing this new thing to the way that we do the old things, in the same way that we do with drugs. And in that way, we can use evidence-based practice to improve what we do, not just with the prescription pad, but beyond, and in the way we communicate and the way we act upon patients. Now, our first question considers the use of extubation. We all know that the most sort of difficult decisions to make are when to intubate somebody, and then have you done it right? And then when they've been ventilated for a period of time and it looks like they're getting better, when do you extubate that person? How do you know that now is the right time to pull the tube? And what not, and and leave it in for a little bit longer while things get a little bit better? Now, Simon Jackson and Julie Richardson of the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit at the Royal Belfast Hospital over in Belfast in the UK come up with a scenario of an eight-year-old boy with a medical history of congenital myoconic dystrophy who was admitted to PICU with a low respiratory tract infection and intubated for a bit. Things got better, Uh, they got him pre-extubation steroids, he was breathing a bit on the tube on its own and then extubated onto non-invasive ventilation. However, he didn't cope with that and went back on to be re-intubated. That's the sort of disappointment that can really spark unpleasant feelings both in the parents, the patient to some extent if they've been aware of it and a lot in the team that chose to do it in the first place. Now, in this case, the reason for that re-intubation was respiratory muscle failure. And the team started to wonder, what if we'd used ultrasound initially to assess the strength of those muscles? Would we know that this was going to be an extubation failure and so hang on longer? They went on and developed a structured question and went out and looked at PubMed and the search engine which searches across a number of different databases and came back with 56 potential hits of which six of them were relevant. A number were thrown out because they were either duplicates or they didn't actually be relevant to the question or were not in English and in the Archimedes field that sort of language problem is one that we often face with our authors. The studies that they looked at were not enormous, the largest of which was 106 paediatric patients and the the smallest was down at 25, with the majority of them being around that sort of 30 to 40 range. What they did was they looked at the, the diaphragmatic muscles using ultrasound and then assessed a variety of factors as to whether that was going to be predictive to some extent of extubation failure and the need for re-intubation afterwards. Now, these were all kids in intensive care units, in paediatric intensive care units, and they didn't have other issues on the whole. We know that there are a number of different ways of doing this measurement. There are ways of looking at how much there is movement and how thick the diaphragm is. So there are different sorts of ways of making a diaphragmatic assessment on ultrasound. And in adults, they have done this in advance and come up with a a moderate sensitivity and specificity, sensitivity of about 90%, specificity of 6% for extubation success in adult patients. Now, with the children, it was uh, a, a bit less, as is often the case. And what they showed was that whilst you can put a cutoff on some of these things with a very high sensitivity, is often the case with post hoc things. When you carry this across, the sensitivity and specificity fall a bit. Looking at the the, the, the DTF, the diaphragmatic thickening fraction, appeared to be the best of the types of ultrasound measurements that was there and was used most successfully. And it seemed to be the best way of telling whether someone was ready for extubation or not. However there was not a 100% sensitivity and specificity value. And so you really need to take into account with the other features. And we probably need to do more controlled and consistent studies with different operators and different degrees of training, looking at all sorts of features before we bring this into routine practice. Now, the other question is at the other end of the tubing journey. And this is about neonates and how to judge whether you've intubated them correctly. It's from Shivendra Chellen and Lawrence Mile at the Leeds Hospital's units in neonatology. And their question comes from a neonate who's intubated in the neonatal intensive care unit, brought around and listened to the trachea, looking to see if there's reasonable auscultation, looking to see if there's reasonable excursion on both sides. The capnography, which we've had in about in the past, shows that it's positive for end tidal CO2 and the patient looks a little bit better. However, we go and do a chest x-ray just to make sure it's in the right place and spot that actually it's a little bit too low. You're wondering when you're looking at this couldn't you just slap an ultrasound probe on and find out where it is? I mean, you use them fairly routinely to look at kids' heads. We know that we can use them to look at babies' hearts. So what about sliding it just across and using it to judge whether the tube is correctly placed or not? Now, this group went away in this. So it's Embase, Medline, Cochrane Library. They looked all over the place to try and find stuff that was there. They found a variety of studies of which 10 went in on the end. They were all observational, as you might expect, and they ranged in size all from the the lowest, slightly surprising we got them published size of 6 or 9, up to the absolutely enormous size of 53. So clearly we're in an area here that's being studied in a relatively small scale across single units, across a variety of different ways. What did they found? Well, it's a slightly confusing picture. Not all of these were amazingly good quality studies. The use and the skills of the operators and the actual type of ultrasound machine wasn't well described. And what they found was a little bit difficult. Basically, they said that if the ultrasound shows you that the tube is in the right place, then you can believe it. However, if it doesn't show you it's in the right place, you can't necessarily know exactly how it is malpositioned. And if you don't see the tube at all, you can't be sure where it is in the slightest. So so it's a very good way of checking it's right. And if it looks right, it is right. And you don't need to do a chest x-ray. Or if you don't see it or it doesn't look right, then what you need to do is get a chest x-ray to really determine in what way it is wrong. And sometimes it won't be. It'll just be that the way you were doing the ultrasound didn't catch it. Now, both of these rely on ultrasound operators being appropriately trained, knowing that we're measuring the same things and getting that reproducibility, both in technology and in operator, in order to get them in place. We need to think a lot about implementing this evidence and to some extent we need multi-centre studies in order to demonstrate that we can use these technologies across the field rather than just in one place and hoping that everywhere else is as good as us. These Archimedes is hopefully have made you think they might have made you think of clinical questions in your own practice. And if so, then you crack on. Follow the instructions to authors on our website. And you too could be having something that is the subject of discussion that maybe you can share the podcast with your granny. Because after all, sharing the podcast is sharing the love. Until next month, when hopefully there'll be fewer storms. Have a lovely time and keep on listening.